0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 29. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, "'I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel.' Laban said, "'It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me.' So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him to be but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, "'Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed.' So Laban gathered together all of the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he did love Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another 7 years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. For Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, "Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me." She conceived again, and bore a son, and said, "Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also." And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Amen. Amen. Well, what a family. <laughs>
1: uh, we have a lot to talk about here in this passage. We are in the middle of our series, Liars, Cheaters, Thieves, and Villains, and we get to see today that Jacob's extended family fits very well into our title, and they're kind of a mess, um, and so we're going we're gonna to just dive in here. And so we'll recap first, Uh, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been following Jacob and his story. And um, last week we left Jacob in the wilderness. He was fleeing from Esau, his brother, and he saw the ladder and all those things happened. And now he's made his way through the wilderness to his uncle Laban's house and he's looking for refuge and he's going to find it. But what he's also going to find is Laban's family, which is as I said, kind of a mess. So we find sisters in this story who are at complete odds. We have an uncle who tricks his nephew into marrying both of his daughters. We have a man who loves one of his wives and hates the other one. And then two sisters who end up in this sort of bizarre childbearing competition uh, that we'll talk about later. So what do we do with all of this as believers? What do we do with this Old Testament story? Well, in her book about Genesis, In the Beginning, religious thinker Karen Armstrong wrote that Genesis reminds us of the unfairness of love and the inconsolable pain of the rejected. And I think that's really true. When you look at these characters, you see they are really looking for love. And it's unfair in their lives, in many of their lives. And they are really fearing being rejected in one way or another. And to be really honest, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, we're more like them than we probably would like to admit, right? So you could kind of think of this section of Genesis like an ancient people magazine. You know that page in People where it's like, stars, they're just like us. Okay, I'm the only one who reads people here. Um It has this page you've never seen. Stars, they're just like us, and it's Kate Hudson, like, loading her groceries into her $150,000 car. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally just like me. Um, So here we have Genesis. They're just like us. We're going to look into this story and see what loves these characters lived for and how they're just like us. And so today we'll look at three, th- three loves that the characters in Genesis are living for. We're going to look at for the love of beauty, for the love of approval, and for the love of Leah. And really Genesis starts out pretty good. If you start just at the very beginning of this story, it starts pretty good. There's this man, and he's destitute and homeless, and he arrives at his uncle's house, and he's brought in. He's brought into the family, and it's beautiful. And then, in that place, he finds the woman of his dreams. It's like a fairy tale. So, let's start with the fairy tale, but I promise you it's probably going to go down from there. (laughs) So, once upon a time, Rachel was a true beauty. She was a true beauty. The passage actually says she was beautiful in form and appearance, which is the Bible's way of quoting the Commodores, Rachel was a brick house. And um, she was mighty, mighty. She is the queen bee of her village. She's the girl everyone stares at as she herds her sheep. I'm sure we can all imagine that. And Jacob is completely smitten with Rachel. I mean, he is like gaga over this woman. After knowing her for only one month, he's willing to work seven years for free for the right to marry her. Now, this is not like, oh, everybody did that back then. Okay, this was unheard of. You didn't pay seven years of wages to marry a woman back then. So that was an extreme, as it would be today. Um, In fact, this this passage contains what I think may be the most romantic line in the Bible, and men, just take note, um, of the kinds of things your wife wants to hear from you. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Aren't you glad your wife is beautiful? Time just flies by. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) But what kind of love is this, right? I mean, honestly, you think seven years of hard labor waiting to marry a woman, like not living together, cohabitating in seven years, but like waiting for seven years. All the cynics in the room are dying right now because apart from the movie, The Notebook, we have, we don't see this often in today's world. We just don't really see this kind of love. But Jacob is willing to wait seven years for the right to marry this woman. I mean, it's, it's unheard of. And it's because she's beautiful. All because she's beautiful. The Bible never says it's any other reason. He is enraptured by her beauty. And beauty really is a strong force in our lives. It's a strong force in our souls. I mean, think of the effect of a beautiful sunset on you, right? Or a gorgeous piece of art. You walk into a museum and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, that one hits me. Or of the beauty of like a newborn's little face, right? Or of a new song you've never heard, a gorgeous piece of music, and how you get caught up in the notes or mesmerized by that cute little nose and those tiny little itty-bitty fingernails, and you think, oh, this beauty. If I could gather this beauty, there's part of you that just wants to gather it up inside you, right? Like it's just this connection. And you think, if I could gather this inside me, I could light the world up. There is something in this beauty that is bigger than just the thing I'm looking at. That's what Jacob saw in Rachel. And Elaine scary in her book, which is a bit heady. I've read it, but it's very good on beauty and being just, she talks about this kind of beauty. You can listen to her Ted talks and things if you want to. It's, she's really interesting. Um, And she talks about this kind of beauty, the way beauty transforms us, it connects us to the divine, that we behold beauty, and it actually causes us to want to create more beauty and more amazing things and do justice and good things in the world, that beauty just stirs us to greatness. She even says beauty is life-saving. She said beauty is life-saving, beauty quickens, it adrenalizes, it makes the heartbeat faster, it makes life more vivid, animated, living worth living. And that's what Jacob's living for, for the love of beauty. He's absolutely adrenalized by Rachel's beauty. And time is just carrying him through seven years like a matter of days. It's amazing. Which is hard for us in our modern context to really imagine on a day-to-day basis because we've really been sold this very shallow view of beauty by our all-pervasive media. We've been told that beauty is youth, well, that's not going to last. Um, we've been told that it's certain sizes of clothing, certain numbers on a scale. For some of you, you've felt all your life like it's a certain skin color that you can't ever seem to have, shockingly. Beauty, shallow in our world, shallow. That's not the kind of beauty we're talking about. That's not even the kind of beauty that probably really Jacob found in Rachel, I just want to challenge you to refuse that definition of beauty in your life. Just refuse it. Just every time your dermatologist sends you something about getting Botox, just be like, no. If you follow me on Instagram, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Just say no. I dare you to let your heart fall in love with the kind of beauty that our God has put in the world. In every person around you. I tell my children all the time, God only makes beautiful people. He only makes beautiful people. That's it. There's one kind of person God makes, gorgeous ones. Your beauty, your beauty inspired God to send his son to make the greatest sacrifice that could ever be made for you. Your beauty inspired God to do that. It was you. Every time you think you're not beautiful, you're forgetting that. You're forgetting the truth. If we want to create more beauty in the world, it's actually really simple. If we want to see more beauty in the world, it just takes just pricking our our awareness a little bit. When you're checking out at the grocery store, tell the cashier that you like her earrings. I promise you she's going to feel more beautiful. (sighs) baby. Depends on who you are. Um, But seriously, tell your kids that you see fireworks every time they tell you a joke, even when they're really lame knock-knock jokes. Tell them it's amazing. Run, run to see the sunset. Don't just go inside after work, shut the garage door. Go find the sunset. Let your heart be stirred by that beauty. Go to the, to the river and just watch the water raw, wash along and realize it's not ever stopping. The beauty of that. The next time, take somebody with you, right? As you're getting your hair cut one day, just say, tell the person you like their tattoo and where'd they get it? <laughs> beauty is everywhere. I promise you, it's everywhere. It's all around you. Tell your teenagers, oh, please tell your teenagers, that every time they laugh, your heart fills with joy. And that you would fly around the world to see them smile. Beauty, it's everywhere if we look for it. And when we behold it, we can't help but feel more beautiful, notice it more, and create more beauty in the world. And more beauty is what we thought we were going to get with Rachel. And Jacob, right? Like, oh, they're amazingly in love and they're beautiful and they're going to have beautiful children and they're going to be on the front of people and it's going to be amazing. Except here's where Genesis like walks us to the cliff and then just kind of drops us off because that's not what happens with Rachel and Jacob. We think the fairy tale is going to end with happily ever after, but instead it's fairy tale over. I got permission to preach with GIFs. (laughs) Isn't she awesome? Over. Um, So in this family, there is this love of beauty, but there are some other loves that are kind of ruining things for us. And for starters, we're going to look at Laban and his family's devotion to their cultural approval. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Laban here, okay, because I do think he loves his family. However, and I do think, okay, I will say this, I do think being a parent to a child who really, really suffers with a lot of rejection is hard. There are a lot of parents in here who are facing that. I also think being a parent to a child who is universally adored is maybe even harder, and there are parents here who are facing that. Now, Laban had both kinds of daughters. That's a tightrope that would be very hard to walk. All right? I do think he loves his family. Being a parent is just the hardest thing ever. <sighs> However, he also very much is concerned about being approved by his culture. He's very worried about how things look. He refuses to have his younger daughter marry before his oldest. After all, how would that look? right? He can't think of any way out of it except to sneak his other daughter into the wedding tent when nobody notices and then be like, come on, Laban. You'd think there'd be another way. So then Jacob, of course, wakes up in the morning. The old switcheroo has happened. He goes to to Laban. He's like, what did you do to me? And then Laban, oh, this is even trickier, right? He's like, Jacob, where I come from, we respect the rights of the firstborn. I mean, we don't do things like you did them back home. He tricks the trickster. And Jacob can say nothing because to balk at it would be the most hypocritical thing he's ever done in his whole entire life. So he just has to swallow this as like, I guess, getting his just desserts. But we feel it, right? The shock when it says, and in the morning, it was Leah. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the horror of waking up after your wedding and realizing there's not the woman next to you that you expected? It be mean, a little shocking. Poor Jacob. Jacob uses, I mean, Laban uses Jacob's past against him. He uses it to manipulate him and keep him right where he wants him. Because he has his cultural values elevated above his relationship with Jacob and with his daughters. Because you know who also knew that it was going to be Leah in the morning besides Laban? Leah. And Rachel. Rachel. Because knowing if you're getting married tonight is something you should know. (laughs) Sort of something you should know. Rachel knew that that Leah was in the wedding bed with the man who loved her devotedly. And Leah knew she wasn't supposed to be in Jacob's bed. She knew. They said nothing. Because they had been raised in a family where how things looked was most important they're just following their father. If Genesis had an official hashtag, which it now does because I'm saying it, it would be hashtag patriarchy fails again. It fails every time, every time. And we're going to talk about why. So the marrying happens in the right order, right? But these girls now, I mean, you're married. Well, that's nice. Now you better start giving out some heirs. You better start having some babies, ladies. And so this bizarre matriarchal monopoly game starts where the woman who hits menopause with the most airs is the winner. <laughs> There's no other way for me to sum that up. And Leah gets pregnant first, which is amazing. Yay, Leah, right? Because this girl has had a hard life. So she gets pregnant first, but it's not going that way for Rachel. And if we look into Genesis 30 as this story progresses, we see Rachel really has some problems because she has believed all of the hype about herself. She's believed she's beautiful, she's perfect, and everything always happens for her the way it's supposed to. Except you can, like, trick a person into marrying the wrong person, apparently. But you can't trick babies out of a womb. Right? And she can't take it. Rachel feels the shame of her culture pointing at her. But this girl's not used to being shamed. So she, in a bold move, turns the finger and points it at her husband. If you look in Genesis 30, she goes to Jacob and she says, Give me sons or I will die. She threatens to literally take away the one thing he loves in life, her. I'll die. So they argue because Jacob can't understand, right? Jacob's like, but what about me? Aren't I enough for you and all that? So she's like, fine, take my servant, Again, why, Genesis, the servant thing. (sighs) Take my servant, have children through her. So Jacob does that, and then it gets even weirder. Like, there's just babies and servants and the whole thing. (laughs) It's just crazy. However, eventually, God opens Rachel's wombs. Now, she has all these children through her servant, which are supposed to be good enough, right? But it's not because she gives birth to Joseph. And then, and then Rachel says, Oh, give me more children, God. Oh, that the Lord would add more sons to me. Because Rachel is realizing one baby, this one baby that I thought might be enough, this can't save me. One victory can't save me. One success isn't taking away my shame. What's happening? with Rachel here. What's happening with us when the one thing we think we want that's going to make everything better doesn't make it better? Well, her heart is crying out for a savior. She doesn't even really know it. She's longing for it. And the irony of it all is that right next to her, in her sister's tent, is Judah. Judah. Judah's right there. And he's someday going to have an heir named Jesus and Jesus is going to take away all the shame, all the sin. He's going to right every wrong, but she can't see it because all she knows about that child is she's jealous of him. Rachel's jealous of God's redemptive plan because it's a little hidden, and she can't see it. And Rachel and Leah raise their children to be jealous. Go ahead and read Joseph's story and see how jealousy plays out in this family. It's not pretty. It takes Joseph's whole life and all the bad things that happened to him. His brothers sell him into slavery. It takes all of that for him to learn a lesson his mother never knew. That what one person means for evil, God can mean for good. Rachel and Leah can't see it because comparison is blinding them. They're constantly comparing themselves with one another. They can't see God's plan. And we find comparison in our culture constantly. We are surrounded by comparison. It's how they market new cars to you. It's how they market new face creams to you. It's how they sell you soda. Our hearts love to play the comparison game. And marketers know it. I mean, my kids are in middle school, three of them. Comparison is absolutely king there. (laughs) It's king. Growing up, teachers post grades. Why? Coaches post stats. Why? I mean, I ran college track, and they posted our body fats on the wall. Why? Because they're hoping that you'll compare yourself to other people and want to get better. And sometimes it works really well, right? But the problem with comparison is, one minute you're at the top of the list, and the next minute you're at the bottom, which is why Jesus actually literally told us to never compare ourselves with other people. He's like, it's just not a game you're going to always win. It's not healthy. Look what it did to Rachel and Leah. But it's hard to stop comparing ourselves, and social media does not help. There are several studies. You can Google these. I was reading them last week for another thing I was doing. And um, they show that the the more frequently you're on social media—I'm really sorry to tell you this—the more frequently you're on social media, and I'm on there a lot, um, the more insecure you'll be and the lower your self-esteem is. Because everybody's always putting, like, these shiny, happy, perfect photos out there, right? And I know that this is true because it's totally happened to me before. A few years ago, I reconnected with a friend from high school. Hadn't seen her since I was 18. Don't live in the same state. Haven't had a word of conversation with her. But, you know, of course. Oh yeah, let's be Facebook friends. So so I start scrolling through her feed. And I promise you, this woman is always perpetually on vacation. (laughs) I'm like... She's snorkeling in one photo. She's, like, climbing a mountain outside of, you know, Seattle in her perfect Lululemon. Um, in one picture, she's actually riding a bike with a basket on the front. This is every white woman's dream. Riding <laughs> riding a bike in the Pacific Northwest with a basket on the front and, like, smiling like she's in a toothpaste commercial. And I looked at these pictures, and I was like, my friend from high school is living my dream life. (laughs) If only I could hike a mountain in $200 uh, yoga pants, my whole life, all my problems would disappear, clearly. And you know that I, of course, am scrolling through the feed in my kitchen in nasty, dirty sweats, haven't showered in three days. My family's grouchy because I'm making spaghetti again. (laughs) Comparison game's not good. It will make us envious. So how do we kill comparison? What could Rachel and Leah have done? I'm going to tell you what kills comparison right now. Cheer for the people around you. Cheer for them when they get their another vacation. Pray blessings upon the people, even around you, even when you think they've had enough already. (laughs) Like that's enough. (laughs) But this is why I want you to know, this is why, this is what makes us a family, right? That's what makes us one, this is what makes us one united, beautiful people. This is how we love one another. It's cheering and celebrating because this is what the gospel means. When you have your victory, when you have your victory, it doesn't mean there are fewer victories available for me. Your victory is proof that someday God's going to give me mine. It's proof. It's proof. It shows God's character. It shows his love. It shows what he's willing to do for his people. Now, I may have to wait a lot longer, but that's okay. That's why Jesus told us to be patient and endure. And for the record, I just want you to know God isn't comparing you with anyone. No one. He compares you with no one. God is looking at you, absolutely. He's watching you. He's loving you. He's singing songs, Zephaniah has over you of joy. But he's watching you, waiting for you to love him most and love other people more than yourself. You can't love other people more than yourself when you're comparing yourself constantly to them. Okay? So comparison. Kick it to the curb. Laban and Rachel were really missing, they're missing a proper understanding of God's love They, of course, did not have the gospel like we do. And his sovereignty. They have no idea God is sovereign in all of their lives. And they love the approval of their culture, most of all. But there were other things missing in this family as well. And as I was reading this, I, of course, could see that just a short list. I made a short list. Kindness, mercy, forgiveness, trust, for example, are all missing in this family. (laughs) All very good things to have in a family. Um, But I really felt—I felt— Belt. I'm a feely person. I was like, something else is missing. What is it? Something's kind of sucking me into this story. Like there's a vacuum. And then I realized, no one loves Leah. No one wants Leah to love them back. There's a vacuum around this woman's life. Jacob wants Rachel to love him back. Uh, Laban and Rachel want their community to love them. Leah wants Jacob to love him, but of course that's not happening. And so we're missing a hero. Someone who will love and save uh, Leah. But who wants to love the outcast, the ugly, the forgotten? Who would do that? Who would do that? So I told you earlier that there's this unbelievably romantic line, maybe the most romantic line in the whole Bible, about Jacob and Rachel. But there's an incredibly romantic line about Leah. But you really have to look for it. And it's this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Please make no mistake about it. God adores this woman. He absolutely can't stand it that she's hated. He sees her. He values her. He loves her. So he starts giving her sons just to try to make her happy, right? Just to show her to show her that he loves her. But of course, Leah, with the first three sons, she really thinks God's giving her sons so that she can win her husband's heart. She, she has expectations on those children that are beyond what they could ever fulfill. There's a whole message in that. But God hasn't blessed Leah so she can beat her sister. He hasn't blessed her so that she can be approved by her culture as not being barren. He didn't give her sons so that Jacob would love her at last. God gave Leah sons because he loved her first. God always blesses you just because he loves you first. That's why God opens his hand to us and gives us his love. So Augustine once said this about God, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And Leah's heart was really restless until she bore her fourth son. Leah gave birth to Judah, and she said, This time, this time, I will praise the Lord. It's like this huge exhale in the narrative. You get to this point, these sisters fighting back and forth, and all this, and then this time, I will praise the Lord. She names that baby praise. Judah means praised. She names her baby praise. And that praise baby will someday have, have a baby who has a baby who has a baby who has a baby. Who's Jesus. From that one line comes the Messiah. Because, maybe because, maybe solely because this time Leah praised the Lord. And, oh, Leah, you can stop trying so hard. We're so happy for her, right? Like, you don't have to try so hard to be loved. At long last, one of these broken people knows that God loves them. It's incredible. It's a miracle. It's amazing. The whole miracle of Genesis is wrapped up in this moment, that from this one broken, fractured, screwed-up, dysfunctional, wacky, weird family, from this one broken family, God will someday mend every broken thing. He'll someday pick up all the shattered pieces that include me and you and make it a mosaic. Right? He's going to make something beautiful out of all the broken bits through this one praise baby. Romans 10 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, or black and white and brown, or male or female, or uh, we can list them all, right? There's no distinction between people. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hey, Jacob, guess what? We all get the birthright of the firstborn son. God's son. Oh, Rachel. Hey, girl. We all get to be beautiful. We all get a full measure of God's beauty. Laban. You do not have to try so hard to match make well with your wacky ways because we all get to be the bride of Christ. In the gospel, all these things are made right. It's amazing. It means that love wins in our lives. Unity is found in this one thing, our brokenness to God, and all God wants us to know is that he loves us and for us to love him back. That's really what the whole Bible's about. Jesus gave us the best underdog story in the whole world. I mean, it's the most incredible story ever. The beauty of the gospel is the same kind of beauty that some of you, maybe not me, but some of you find in that last minute buzzer beater when the underdog beats the number one ranked team. Right? Yes. We love that. I do. It's like, remember the Titans and Rocky and every other sports-ish movie I've had to watch? (laughs) Rolled up into this one story, right, of victory and winning. And the gospel means that winning, 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 we win. We have victory in Jesus. And it's not just about beating somebody else. It's never actually just about beating somebody else. We win in Jesus. We win in Jesus because we are his beloved, It's about finding out, right? All those movies is about finding out that I'm really him, right? I'm really the victor. I am the one who overcame because of Jesus. That's what it's all about, that he loved me so much, he took me to the heights of his heights, and he went with me to the depths of my depths. And I'm still in him. I'm beloved. You're beloved. We win in Jesus. None of the people in Genesis knew that yet, though. They didn't have a risen Savior who gave them the victory over sin and death like we do. But victory is our destiny in Christ. No one can take that from us. And that's why vain beauty and cultural approval will always fall short in your life. They will never satisfy you because you were made for something more. So maybe you're Rachel today. And You've been living your best life, but now you know there's something you really want and only God can give it to you and you feel like you're going to die if you don't get it. Or maybe you're Laban today and you're looking at the people around you and you're like, this isn't fair, these people I care about, we got to make this right, even if I have to do it a little crookedly. Maybe you're Jacob and you have fallen in love with something beautiful, but people keep using your past to try to keep it away from you. And maybe you're Leah, and you're still waiting. You're still waiting to know that you're loved, that you're special, that you're seen, that you're valuable. If any of our Genesis friends could pick up the phone and call us, or preferably text us, (laughs) they're in eternity now, and they would tell you this. Stop being afraid. Stop trying so hard. You are loved. You will love, love is your destiny, and you will never be rejected. You have nothing to worry about. Just go and love. Don't be afraid to trust that your redemption is hidden around you. Don't be afraid. I titled this sermon for the love of Leah, but really it could be called for the love of Carrie, or for the love of Barnabas, or for the love of Michelle, or Rick or Mike or John or Susie or whatever your name is. Because this Genesis 29 is about us. It's about how much God loves us and how that love will win in our families and in our lives every time.